Jim. Thanks so much. This is really, really uh, kind of you to invite me with this community. It's great seeing all these faces. Um, I don't know you guys, but I'm really a big fan of Jim's and just really grateful for this opportunity. So um, you asked for just a little about my, my sort of self and my background so you know uh, who I am. My roots and most of my family are down south in Arkansas, but I've lived here in North Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., uh, for about 25 years now. My wife, Judy, and I have raised our four kids here uh, alongside good neighbors and friends like Steve and Meg Garber, who uh, Jim has already um, noted is on the call with us tonight. And that's been a big part of our life is living in the in this very complicated world of Washington in community, communities of American peacemakers to help bring healing to intractable conflict at home and abroad. Um, and so that's a big giant goal, but it's, we're not trying to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're trying to help Americans understand their own relationship to this conflict that happens halfway around the world uh, and then engage it differently than we do now. Because it's a, it's a conflict that it's, it's removed from us. It's not near us, but we're very involved in it. At least many of us are. And American policy and resources and other things help shape it. And so we're trying to help uh, people engage it in a way that makes it the conflict easier to solve um, and that's our work and it but it's the kind of work that's bigger than just this particular conflict because we're teaching people about the principles and practices and postures of peacemaking and we're bringing them back home after giving them these sort of immersion trips into that very complicated difficult uh, place and then helping them figure out how to live that out here at home uh, and for Christians, which is most of the folks we work with, it's really a discipleship issue. We're trying to help people embrace a discipleship of peacemaking. So that's the that's the sort of larger story of it all. And it's very it's very uh, either ridiculous uh, or or it's uh, or we're really onto something that's true here because uh, this this you know this slogan that we have that we are pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, and pro-peace is either very naive and it's the kind of peacemaking that's you know all about rainbows and unicorns and uh, bad poetry or it's touching something that's really true about how god meant us to live in the world and how the world really works and what the moral universe looks like and that i what what's going to work for one has to in some way work for the other or it's not going to work at all and that's our that's our uh, way to approach it and think about it so let me try once again and see if the screen will share and I stayed live this time. All right, there we go. And there. Good. All right. So, so Jim asked me to talk about some of the lessons we've learned after all these years. I mean, I've, I've been going to Israel and Palestine for many years now, but with, but with Telos, we're 11 and a half years into this work. I've led at least 55 delegations of Americans over there to, to meet with people on both sides and to learn about this. So we have learned a lot of things. He initially asked me to come up with three, and I said, well, that's not enough. I need, to, I need more. And I had about a dozen, but I whittled it down to, to 12. But this is, an all, this is not an all-inclusive list, I want you to know. But it's some of the things that I think are, gonna, are, are useful to us and to our community as we're trying to process how do we live in this very, very difficult and divided time, right? Um, so here we are in 2020 in a pandemic, in an election year, um, you know, we're witnessing a new civil rights movement. It sort of feels like the world is either upside down or on fire um, or, or both. And a lot of people are angry and there's a lot of things to be angry about. Um, but what we, what we really need is not just a whole bunch more angry activists. What we really need are peacemakers who are committed uh, to following Jesus and who better embrace his calling to bring healing and reconciliation into the world. And so that's why I think we, there are some important things that we can, that we can say here. Oh, there we go. I've got to turn this right. So I'm going to, let me start this off by telling you a story. And this will prove to you that the, that peacemaking is way more serious than we sometimes think it is. When we started this work 11 years ago, we didn't even use the word peace or peacemaking because they were seen as so unserious. But after we have brought a whole community of people over there, you know, 2,000 or more alumni of our trips and our programs have gone on this journey and learned about peacemaking, we now feel like we can at least within our community reclaim those words and talk about them seriously. So let me introduce you to two friends and they'll give you, I'll give, this will give you an idea of what I'm talking about. This is Robbie Damlin and Bassam Arami. 
Robbie is a Jewish Israeli uh, mother whose son David was killed by a Palestinian sniper uh, while he was serving military duty in the West Bank. Bassam is a Muslim Palestinian father whose 10 year old daughter, Abir, was shot in the head by uh, an Israeli border policeman um, uh, with a rubber bullet just outside her school in Jerusalem uh, and uh, who died just thereafter. And you would not imagine that Robbie and, and Bassam would be friends uh, given their history, that each of them had lost a child to sort of the other side. And yet they are very close friends, but uh, they are not just individually close friends, but they're a part of a community of about 600 Israelis and Palestinians who have lost a loved one in the conflict, and rather than seek revenge or demand that you know that that more blood be spilled to save uh, to to avenge their the deaths of their children or their family, they've actually sought the way of reconciliation. And so they're part of a reconciliation program that doesn't just engage in personal reconciliation with Israelis and Palestinians, although it's part of that, but it they are actually advocates and spokesmen and teachers. Uh, uh, for reconciliation between both sides and for um, dealing with not just interpersonal issues, which is part of it, but also dealing with, with systemic issues, uh, like, the, like the power and political arrangements and imbalances that exist and so forth. And so these people are amazing folks and they, they teach us what, um, what peacemaking really requires and what it looks like. And there's so much that I've learned from them through the years. So I, I've, again, sort of tried to identify six things that we can um, hopefully learn from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I'll start with probably the most foundational principle, which I think really has application for all of us, even today, as we're trying to navigate a very difficult time in our own history and culture. And that's just about listening, listening to understand. Um, because this is what opens the door. There's a great quote from Stephen Covey, and I'm having a little challenge here. Oh, getting the slides to advance correctly. Uh, there we go. Stephen Covey said that um, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. So often when we hear something that we disagree with, we just tune out or we listen long enough to formulate our response as to why the other person is wrong. And sometimes, if you're like me, you may not even let the other person finish their thought before you jump in and explain to them why they are so wrong. Well, obviously that's not listening. Real listening involves seeing someone else as a fellow human being made in the image of God and being curious as to why they think and feel so differently. How did they come to such a different conclusion from me? And then that opens up a lot of potentials for the potential for, for, um, for understanding and for finding a way out. So this kind of listening, I think, has several good effects. First, I would say it, it can challenge what we believe or what we think to be true, but it can also sharpen it. It can, it can help us refine our own understanding of something. Secondly, this kind of listening can help us understand what is it going to take to get out of this. So even it, it does not mean that I have to agree with the other person that they're right. But if I can understand their point of view, where they're coming from, I can, if I can hear in that, what are the things that they most need? What are the things that are causing them the most anxiety or that they feel the most strongly about? How can I figure, use that to figure out what is the way that we can deal with these things to get to a different kind of future, a different kind of relationship. The fourth thing that it does, um, or the third thing it does is it affirms the dignity of the people that we're listening to. It's been said listening is an act of love. Uh, a pastor friend of mine says that listening is a modern version of foot washing. It's, it's the way you demonstrate respect and humility and love to someone is to listen them, to, to hear their story. Uh, and we all want to be listened to. We all want to be heard. None of us want to be dismissed. If you're in a, if you're married, or if you're in a, some other kind of serious family or friend relationship, you know that you want to be heard, and the person you're in a relationship also desperately needs to be heard. And this is a way to affirm someone's even dignity. And then the fourth thing that listening does is that it creates empathy as it humanizes even our adversaries. So my friend Robbie, who I introduced you to just a second ago, said, has said a number of times um, that, that 
the um, to listen to someone to, to really humanize your enemy is really the beginning of the end of conflict. Once you have once you have turned someone into a human being, you can you can actually find your way uh, toward some kind of resolution in many cases. So that brings us to the second point here, and I'm gonna let's see if I can get this one to work. There we go. Second thing we can learn, which is tied to that, is that dehumanization is a dangerous game to play. It says in, in the book of Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When you begin to see someone as less than human, the worst thing doesn't always happen, but it's always possible. And that's really important to remember. When we dehumanize people, it doesn't always lead to genocide and horror and Holocaust, but it, it opens up the door for incredible things, horrible things to happen. For centuries, the Jewish people were dehumanized by Christians in Europe. Negative stereotypes were created that still plague them today. The Nazis capitalized on these centuries of anti-Semitism and were in a few short years able to turn the most civilized nation in the world into an instrument of mass murder and genocide on an unprecedented scale. Ordinary men and women participated in this, including many who did not see a disconnect between that and their Christian identity and faith. Palestinian people have been branded as barbarians and bloodthirsty terrorists and unworthy of human rights and freedom and dignity which has become a rationale for keeping them under control and denying their claims for self-determination. But in God's economy, there is no hierarchy of value when it comes to human life. We cannot flourish and live in peace if we act as if some lives matter less than others. So dehumanization is really dangerous and it starts with language. We go to the Holocaust Museum when we take our groups, Israel and Palestine, it's a chilling experience, but before you even get to the horrors of the mass extermination that happened and the genocide, you get to just the, the sort of, the, how did this kind of come to be? And it all begins first with language and then with legal structures and laws for the, for the implementation of the Nazi program. And so it's so dangerous when we as communities and especially when leaders use dehumanizing language toward people and so it's important and this is one of the critical lessons I think we can learn from peacemaking in other contexts. All right next um, next third truth we have to be able to hold competing truths in tension. The physicist Niels Bohr says that the opposite of a fact is a falsehood but the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. And I'm not talking about moral relativism here. I'm not talking about the idea that there's no such thing as truth, but I want to unpack this a little bit. So let's look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a second. And then we, you, know, you guys wouldn't obviously know the whole history of this. It's a very long, complicated history, but 1948 is kind of a critical year in that conflict. For Israelis, it marks this time just after the Holocaust. World War II had ended in 1945. This is it's time when the, the time when the fortunes of the Jewish people turned dramatically after the Holocaust, and the state of Israel was born. So, 48 is this moment of victory and celebration that is still commemorated in that way today by the Israelis. For Palestinians, 1948, that same event is what they call their Nakba which in, is an Arabic word, which means catastrophe. It's the time in which the world as they knew it was lost, and they were scattered throughout out the Middle East and the world as stateless refugees, which they largely remain today. A number of years ago, there was an Israeli a professor and a Palestinian professor who got together and they tried to write a textbook for high schoolers that would tell a joint history of their people, not just an Israeli story or a Palestinian story, but sort of the, their shared history together. They just, it, got, it became so difficult to put it all into one text that they actually created uh, inside the textbook two columns, the Israeli story and parallel was the Palestinian story. They didn't try to weave them together and the book is called Side by Side. 
And some teachers in some different schools in Israel and Palestine began to use this. There were some Israeli schools that began to teach from this textbook, and they got some media coverage that they were doing this. And the Israeli Ministry of Education stepped in and said, you cannot use this textbook. And they made it, they outlawed it. And the Palestinian Ministry of Education got word that what was happening in Israel, and they realized that this the same thing was happening in their schools, and they stepped in and made it illegal to use it in Palestinian schools. Israelis and Palestinians can't agree on much, but the what one thing they can agree on is that the other side's story can't be told. And yet, they both have to be told. They can't both be agreed to because they be, but because they're they're way too different, but they have to be understood. Holding two truths in tension doesn't make the truth relative. It means that sometimes, though, that what we think is the whole story is not the whole story. So my own personal story is I, I grew I, I'm, I grew up in Arkansas, but my ancestors actually immigrated from England to Virginia in the early 1700s. And so there's a, you know, if I, if I tell my own story or I tell the story of my, of my country, of America, it's, there's, that's going to inform the story that I tell. There were Africans who came to Culpeper County, Virginia, the same county that my ancestors came to in the same year mine came under very different circumstances. And their descendants also have a story of America and it will sound very different than mine. And it doesn't make mine true and theirs false or vice versa, but it means we have to hold these truths in tension. So I'm gonna go on a limb here and talk just for one second about, about this giant issue that is still uh, plaguing us today, and that is this unresolved issue of, of race in America. If you look at the issue of race in America, white people will often say, we ended slavery, we had a civil rights movement, and a black president, and there's a Martin Luther King Boulevard in every major southern city. So what's the problem? We've made such progress. And black people will often tell you a very different story, one in which Slavery was replaced by convict leasing and sharecropping, which gave way to Jim Crow segregation, and the freed slaves were not given access to any of the wealth and capital that their labor had built up for generations, and they'll tell you of terrorism by the Klan and lynchings and the burning of black churches and discriminatory housing policies that created ghettos and prevented access to home ownership and about mass incarceration and how there's still a lot to do. And so both these stories in their own way are true, but they have to be held together and held in tension if we're going to figure out what is the larger story that we're trying to get out of. And as Christians, we always have to keep in mind that we are trying to live into an even larger story still, that we're trying to situate ourselves in God's overarching story. And just like when you go to a movie, if you arrive 20 minutes late, you're going to admit, although nobody gets to go to movies anymore, but remember those days when we went to movies. And if you arrive late to the movie, which is one of my pet peeves, you could miss something really important. If you, if you start God's big story after Genesis 3, you're missing something really important. The whole story starts with shalom. It starts with right relationship between God and, you, and each other and the created natural world and flourishing and justice and peace. And that's the original vision. And that's, the, that's where the story has to begin because that's the, the work of God's kingdom and the restoration that it's being, that's being enacted right now. So at this point, we're halfway through these lessons to learn, and, and uh, Jim had suggested we take a break in the middle and, and have a discussion question. And so I'm going to throw it back to the very beginning. Uh, the first point was listening, not just to argue, but listening to understand. So the question that I'd like you to consider in your, in your groups is, how well would those closest to me say that I listen to understand? And we'll come back in a second. And the next thing, which is important, um, one of the, the fourth thing that we've learned that is really helpful, is how self-interrogation is way more helpful than blame. Mm. So it's easy to say no one listens to me, and, and that may be true. Um, but the more important thing is sometimes to become the listener. And the more important thing sometimes is to at least explore what is mine to do. Um, in politics, it's so easy to listen to the news channel we most agree with, to blame all our problems on the other side, rather than, than offer a critique of our own team. In a marriage or another close relationship, it's easier to blame the conflict on my wife than to look at what I did to contribute to it, right? But my ability as a Republican to change how Democrats behave is pretty limited. 
Uh, and my ability to change my wife is also pretty limited, um, really limited. But I do have some ability to bring about change within my own team when I engage as a thoughtful critic. And I can allow Jesus to change me. And if I do those things, I have a lot better shot of getting out of the conflict in a healthy and sustainable way. And um, let's see, I actually didn't put it back in present mode, did I? So I need to do that and go to the next slide because the next slide is really important. It's a quote from Jesus who said, you hypocrite, take, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I mean, so in this, in this you know, parable, Jesus is saying, like there's this giant thing in your eye and there's this small thing in your neighbor's eye and yet you're fixated on that. But there's also this way he's saying, deal with your own stuff and then you can actually be helpful to your neighbor to get this thing out of your neighbor's eye in some way perhaps. But it's really, it's something that's really important in that, or that self-interrogation, starting with your own, your own issues and your own tribe and your own team. And I think that's so what's missing. I live in Washington and it's so just, you know, it's so frustrating to hear the conversations that happen in the political arena, historically, but especially right now, uh, in which it's always the other side's fault in, in total. And very, there's the hypocrisy meter just doesn't even work at all on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, things that one side criticized when the other side was in power, and then they do it themselves, and they don't, there's no self-awareness of that. And so peacemakers know that self-interrogation is really important. All right, number five. This one is kind of for the cynics out there. It's important to remember that transformation is always possible. Some of us are naturally cynical about the mess that the world is in. For us, if you're asked to rate, your, if, if, you're, if you're in this category, you're asked to rate yourself on a scale of optimism versus pessimism, you know where you're going to land because the pessimists have all the facts. But as Christians, we have a different choice. Rather than optimism versus pessimism, I think we should plot ourselves on the line between hope and despair. And we are a people of hope because we have an eschatological hope, a belief that the God we serve is making all things right, and that the individual transformation he brought to our lives is available to others, and that transformed people can join him in the work of Christ's kingdom, bringing measures of health and healing to our societies. We can't fix everything. Only Jesus will do that in, the, in fullness in his own timing but we can join him as his ambassadors of reconciliation. Our friend, the Palestinian pastor from Bethlehem, uh, Mitri Rahib, says that hope is not the same thing as optimism. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Hope is what you do. You live and act in hopeful ways. You live in countercultural signpost kind of ways in order to allow yourself to be changed, but also in order to help uh, be a signpost for a different way of, of living and acting in the world and opening up new possibilities. And transformation does happen. I, I, as I told you, I spent six years in the State Department. In four of those years, I worked on the policy planning staff when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State. And her life story is such a great example of what I'm talking about here. So Condi Rice was born in segregated Alabama in the 1950s. She was friends with the four little girls who were killed in Birmingham church bombing in 1963. And her family ultimately said, this, this Jim Crow is never gonna end. The, it, you know, as, as the civil rights movement was pushing forward, the violence actually was, was, was increasing in terms of the way um, that the, the, the power structure was reacting to African-Americans. And so her family left and moved to Denver and she ended up going to college there and she learned to speak Russian and became an expert in the Soviet Union during the 1970s. And of course, in the 1970s, the Soviet, Soviet communism looked like it was gonna be with us for a very long time. Kami Rice is not an old woman. She's only in her 60s today. But in the span of her lifetime, these two giant institutions that have shaped her life, Jim Crow segregation and Soviet communism, no longer exist. And what she used to say at the State Department is that what looks impossible today might look inevitable tomorrow. Change does happen. 
Not always, never as fully as we want, never as fast as we want, usually not, but it does happen. We are a people of hope, and we have to live into that. And the final thing that we've learned is that peacemakers know that the end goal you're always striving for is reconciliation. This is important to us at Telos because the word Telos is an ancient Greek word. And the, your telos is your, your aim, your big idea, your, the thing, your, your, your big goal, the thing you're, you're headed toward or striving for. And what Steve Garber, who's on this call, often talks about is the way in which uh, the Greeks also had this concept of praxis. Are we living our lives? Are we interacting and living our days in ways that are moving us toward our telos? Are our praxis and our telos aligned? What is our big goal? Peacemakers know that the end goal is not to turn the tables. The end goal is reconciliation. So some of us are, who are, are not cynics, uh, and we don't need to be reminded to live in hope. We're ready for the fight. We're ready to change the world. But the hard reality is that the world is pretty satisfied just like it is. We can be so convinced of how right we are that we can become self-righteous, angry activists, but just like the world has a lot of apathetic cynics, it also has plenty of angry activists. What it needs more of is peacemakers, those who are committed to taking on the hard issues of hatred and violence and systemic injustice with an eye toward reconciliation. One of the things I see most clear, clearly from our work in Israel-Palestine is how much we need people who do this hard work of peacemaking in a way that allows for healing. This was the genius of Martin Luther King. King believed that his enemies were not, his, were not the white segregationists, but the unjust system of segregation that so cruelly oppressed black people, but was also destroying the souls of their white oppressors. Jesus said, I'm, I'm to love my enemies, not destroy them. And what King said is that the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption, the end is the creation of what he called the beloved community. It's this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It's this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this, and that's the kingdom of God. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the heart of men. So Jesus said, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what a reconciled world will look like, and it is our call to live this way now until such time as Jesus returns. So I want to end with this story. This is a um, church in Char Charleston, South Carolina, uh, known as Mother Emanuel. On a hot night in June in 2015, there were 12 African-American Christians meeting for midweek Bible study, and they were joined by a young white man. Uh, who came in and was welcomed into their into their midst. And at the end of the service, around 9 p.m., this same young man uh, got up, took out a gun, and opened fire and uh, murdered nine people that night. And we all know that story. The perpetrator of this act of terrorism made no secret of his desire to provoke a race war in America. And yet, Charleston didn't go up in flames. Um, largely because justice was sort of swiftly done. This guy was arrested the next day, and less than 48 hours, he was actually brought before uh, the, uh, the court, and the families of the victims were there, and they were unexpectedly given by the judge the opportunity to address the man who had just killed their loved ones. And these people left the whole country, the whole world, in fact, in disbelief as they extended forgiveness. We all remember that, I'm sure. There was nothing cheap about what they did. This is serious stuff. This is not rainbows and unicorns, right? Not all the families could get there, understandably. But this disruptive act of forgiveness, this rejection of revenge, opened up a new path. And less than a month later, the Confederate flag that for 54 years had flown defiantly over the South Carolina state capitol was brought down with broad bipartisan support. The sister of one of the victims said that uh, later, she said, for me, she was talking about forgiveness of the guy who'd killed her sister. And she said, I'm a work in progress. I acknowledge that I'm very angry. But one thing my sister always enjoined in our family is she taught me that we are the, we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. That's so powerful. 
I would say that we, all of us on this call, we are a family that love built. We have no room for hating. We are a people who believe that the God who made us all has not forsaken us in the mess that we've made, but in his great love, he came to us. He became one of us. He healed our afflictions, laid down life and privilege and power and dignity for our sake, endured humiliation and shame and separation and darkness, all to reconcile us to God and to each other. That's a, that whole thing has been done. And so we are a family that love built. And so we have to embrace that calling to join Jesus as his ambassadors of healing and reconciliation in a culture of hurting and division and violence. So I think I'll let that be the last word and just kind of see what questions you have. Todd, thank you so much. That's fantastic. It's very helpful. Um, and uh, those are huge. So we're gonna take some, um, take some questions now. Um, the first one that I have coming through here is, have you seen, you know, I think we got cut off when you were talking about your political background. Um, have you seen any examples of this type of peacemaking playing out in Washington between people of who are deeply involved in different political parties? Yeah, I, I mean, look, it, it, this is a very difficult time. When, when I was on the Hill in the 90s and the early 2000s, we thought it was, you know, it was rough. It was like a, you know, a, a Sunday school, you know, picnic back then compared to what it is now. Uh, it, it is harder to see examples of, of people self-interrogating and reaching across the lines and that sort of thing right now. Um, I know they happen. I have a son who works for a member of Congress on the Hill right now, and I know some of this stuff happens, but it doesn't happen with any regularity. It's something that's missing. And one of the things that we've always said at Telos is that, that, uh, culture is upstream from politics so it's easy to blame everything on washington and to sit out in the country and say it's all fault of washington i get that i live here i understand how dysfunctional washington is but washington is very much a reflection of where the culture is at right now and the people in washington are often being very responsive to what they think their constituents want from them uh, and what many have determined is that their constituents want them to not compromise, want them to do, you know, and I don't think that's generally true in the main, but I think the voices that they often hear from are the ones who are very purist and don't want this, this kind of across the lines kind of thing to happen. But I'll, I'll give you two just quick stories. I mean, in, just from last week, I was, um, I was driving to, to meet some folks for lunch and I was, I turned on the radio and I heard George W. Bush delivering the eulogy uh, at the John Lewis uh, funeral in Georgia. And then I heard Bill Clinton come on and deliver a eulogy just after that. And then I went to lunch and then I came back for lunch. The funeral was still going on. And I heard Barack Obama giving the, the, the third eulogy. You had these three presidents from two parties all there in, to honor this legendary man, but in, in, a, in a real spirit of, of, uh, of this kind of you know, posture of understanding and listening and that sort of thing. Um, and when I was on the Hill, the work, the work that we often did in my, in my office, I worked, I was the chief of staff to a Republican senator from Bentonville, Arkansas. That's important. I, I mentioned that because uh, what my boss, who was a, a very conservative Republican and very tied to the business community, was also a real champion for human rights in China and the American relationship to China to encourage greater political reforms and freedoms in China and using whatever influence that we had to, to encourage that. And so we used to meet with lots of these Chinese dissidents from Tiananmen Square, the, the massacre in Tiananmen Square, and other uh, dissidents who've been, people who've been imprisoned for their religious and political views in China. And we did this in full cooperation with, um, with liberal Democrats, the two most liberal members of the Senate at the time. And my boss was one of the very most conservative. But we came together in a common good approach. We had many things we disagreed with. In fact, most things we disagreed with, with each other about, but we came together about something we could agree on. And it was such a powerful way to, to sort of advance something, a common good approach. But, it, all, but it, it was helpful to the issue, but it was, I think, helpful to us to find ways to humanize people on the other side who it's so easy just to be dismissive of. And, uh, and so that, that kind of thing did happen even when, when I was there. I, I'm sure some of that still happens today. But it is, it's, it's got to be 
uh, it's it's got to be sort of requested, demanded by by people in the in the country that they want their their re representatives to you know behave in this way too before they have an incentive to do it. Mm, that's good. Um, we just to give everyone a, a heads up. I'm going to prioritize questions that are related to uh, our own self interrogation and how we can be uh, peacemakers and um, take the log out of our own eye um, rather than the intricacies of what's happening in Israel-Palestine. But if we have time, I might get to some of those, but um, I'm gonna prioritize some of those. So one question here, I'm gonna rephrase it a little bit, is um, with self-interrogation, taking the log out of your own eye. It's a nice concept and would be enormous if it happened. But well, let's just say someone is going to spend four hours one morning self-interrogating and taking the log out of their own eye. How would you have them spend that four hours? You can assign them any questions, any activities, whatever, but four hours they get. I mean, look, I think the, the theological concept that's connected to self-interrogation is repentance <laughs> i mean it's you know there's a whole there's a whole liturgical practice you can go through if you want to engage in true acts of repentance um and i think that's part of what that is uh, it's repenting for our own sins and for and it's accounting for and then and and you know and giving to god the things that that we are where we fall short ourselves um but I don't know that it has to be, I don't think it's a four hour practice or a daily practice. I mean, I do think repentance is a daily practice and, and or it should be uh, for each of us. I'm, uh, but what I'm, what I'm saying is I think that it's, it's so easy to get in the habit of always blaming the someone else, the other side, you know, like, especially if we're in, a, it, we're in, we're in a real, you know, an election season. And so it's so easy to just say it's always all their fault. Right. And, and our side is, is you know, maligned, beleaguered, you know, mistreated, uh, or right. Uh, and, and that can never be true. I mean, in any, you know, in any kind of situation, it's, it's rarely that clean. We are, as Steve Garber always says, we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We're all made in the image of God, but we're also all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. So uh, Solzhenitsyn, the Soviet dissident, said the line between good and evil uh, runs through every human heart. And so we can all do really beautiful things in the world and be good to our neighbors and love our children and, and families and, uh, and do self-interested, self self-sacrificing things because we are made in God's image and we can all do really violent and selfish and awful things because we're all, you know, sons of Adam at the same time. And so it's, it's, it's never clean that way that, you know, where everybody on the other side is wrong and our side is always right. And even if I spend my days criticizing the other side, even if they are largely wrong, and I spend my time blaming and criticizing, I'm not going to change them. All I'm going to do is cultivate my own sense of moral superiority and self-righteousness and pride and that sort of thing. And that doesn't, that doesn't make me an agent of God's healing in the world either. So what, what self-interrogation can help do is actually just foster humility in our own hearts. And it may help us if we allow ourselves to be transformed, to become those agents that can bring transformation in our own tribe, in our own community, in our own household, or uh, in those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like when we talk about the language of sin, or even virtue, uh, that tends to be excluded outside of political discourse. So when you think about the fruit of the Spirit, how often... Uh, could we even just sit down and walk through the fruit of the spirit and say, is this describing my discourse or uh, yeah. feels like slander or, um, you know, the, the, the stuff about, or even having our, taking our thoughts captive, we tend to say, okay, that's really important in this one spiritual aspect of my life. But when I get into the political stuff, I'm just flinging mud. It doesn't apply. There's only one moral universe we get to live in. It doesn't, yeah. We don't get to bifurcate it out. All right. So um, another question here. So this is, I think, is a really important question. How can we balance the desire for forgiveness without excusing or ignoring 
uh, racism or injustice. Uh, I think, you know, probably what's behind this is that when a, an atrocity happens, there's often people who are trying to like get the victims of it to rush to forgive if they really want to follow Jesus. Yeah. How do we hold that intention? Yeah. Well, first of all, we can't, we can't ever, we can't ever force anyone to forgive or that, you know, or toward forgiveness that, that, that it's, that has to be internal. I would say you always have to look in most of these kinds of conflict situations, there's usually a power dynamic at play too. So there's usually someone who has more power than, than, than an other, especially if it's a communal conflict and people who have more power uh, will say they want reconciliation, but they want it as cheaply as possible. And so if, we're, if you really want to get to the race issue in America, white Christians will almost always say they want reconciliation, but they want it as cheaply as possible. They, they're, they're, you know, they don't always want to pay a real price for that. And reconciliation, absent dealing with the larger structural issues, is not, is not fully possible. It's, it can be individually possible, but the reconciliation we seek at a communal level will never happen. So Israel-Palestine is a perfect example of this. So what I mean by that is in, to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is a very big pr project, it, you know, decades it's gone on and, and, uh, and it's defied resolution. It's not insoluble, but it's hard. But the two big things it requires are a reconciliation process but you cannot expect Palestinians and Israelis to in really engage in reconciliation when one party has power over the other. So right now, Israelis have a fully functioning state and a first world economy and the largest military in the Middle East, and they control Palestinian lives, movement. Uh, you know, every aspect of Palestinian lives is largely controlled by, by Israel. And so you can't expect reconciliation to happen in that context. It's not until you also, in, engage in a reshuffling of the power dynamics and create some kind of political resolution to the conflict that, that creates some more equity and equality, uh, puts them on a level playing field, a two-state solution, something else. Something's got to be done at the structural and political level before you can really get to reconciliation. But coming from this, like the world of the State Department, the State Department always wants to deal with the political resolution, seeing everything as a geopolitical conflict ignoring the reconciliation part of it, right? So if you just, if you created a, a political resolution in Israel-Palestine and you created two states tomorrow and you didn't do any of the work of res reconciliation, you're just putting a pause button on conflict and it will blow up again and quickly if, you, if that's all you do. So you have to both deal with it matters of the human heart and structural issues too. It's our, it's our constant challenge in, in, around race in America. Racism is a matter of the human heart that has to be dealt with, but it is also a systemic and structural problem that has to be dismantled and understood. And so you have to do both these things together. And if you're in that position where you're sort of not under the weight of the structural problem, it's easy just to say, well, it's all, you know, it's all interpersonal and I just, and we all need to learn to love each other and, and forgive each other. And that's really important. It's insufficient, but they're both insufficient by themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's very helpful. Um, one question here is, um, okay, so with you having worked in the State Department and um, what, what do you wish the average person could see about how things play out that, that we are largely ignorant of? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, when I was in the State Department, I saw a lot of American Foreign Service officers, the just career Foreign Service officers who, you know, signed up in their 20s and became members of the Foreign Service, and they dedicated their, their lives to serving the country by, you know, living abroad most of their lives in different embassies around the world, occasionally coming back to Washington. And such a professional group of people out there every day advancing American interest and arguing for American values in all sorts of settings around the world. And so it was really, it was really hard for me to see back a few months ago when we had hearings on Capitol Hill, when we had the ambassador to Ukraine and some other, these career, these very, you know, very professional, stellar, patriotic Americans, both from the, from the, um, the State Department and from the, uh, the Pentagon, from the military, having their, their 
character beat defamed and being accused of being unpatriotic and so forth. Because I really would love if Americans could see how how there is a whole group of people. Uh, you know, we give a lot of credit to the military, and which is not an inappropriate thing to do, but we, we miss the fact that in addition to our soldiers who are out there serving, there are also a lot of like diplomats and people in the Foreign Service who are out there using soft power every day to try to, to explain the American position on, uh, and to the world and American values to the world. Um, and so I, that's, a, that's, a, that's always something I would love for Americans to have a better window into, because you just don't know these people or see these people unless they're you know, your neighbors if you live in Washington or you travel and you go to the embassy somewhere for some business. That's good. Um, another question came in. Um, when you're trying to listen, let me see if I can summarize this here. When you're trying to listen to understand with someone you strongly disagree with, but they are not doing the same thing, uh, what's the best way to proceed when the listening is one-sided? Yeah, I mean, that's really hard and it depends on how important the relationship is to some extent. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna here. I'm not saying that this is just a magic thing that you and that you're obligated to use this all the time in every way. I'm talking about when you're in a real, in a, you know, in a relationship that is important and that needs to be needs to be on some kind of better footing or better key or, you know, or you're trying to get to the other side of something. This is really key. But it doesn't mean that you have to listen to everybody all the time in this kind of posture. I think it, it, it's important to practice this even in places where you think it may not be necessary or helpful because it does cultivate something in your own soul that's good. It's good for you uh, to do it even when there's no prospect for you know it, making an advance. But at the same time, remember, transformation does happen. And sometimes when people feel heard and listened to, they spew for a long time and eventually they realize that you're actually listening and it, it can bring about a, its own transformation. But it's not something that you have to commit yourself to, like I, and, and especially if you're enduring abuse and that sort of thing, you don't have to do that. But I do think it's a skill we have to practice and we have to practice it probably more often than it makes us comfortable. Mm. Yeah, so another question that's related to that is uh, after the initial exchange, when people have listened well, they feel like they can articulate the other person's position yeah. in a way that would be recognized by them. What, how do we get to the next step of actually engaging in the important discussions that need to be had in a fruitful, healthy way? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the stuff that obviously it, 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 it's particular. I mean, it's different if you're talking about interpersonal relationships, if you're talking about conflicts between, you know, people groups or nations or whatever, there's, there's different methods that you would use. But there's some things that I think that, that are in common. I and mean, you, what you're hoping to do in the listing process is to surface the areas of disagreement, the issues that, are, you know, that, that exist between you. And then you're trying to see if there are ways that those, that there are gaps that can be bridged. And, and not every gap can be bridged. Not every, and that's, and you have to be, a, you know, you have to be aware of that. And there are some that if you can't bridge the gap, you know, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. But there are some gaps that you don't have to bridge. There's some, like, you know, if, you, if you're engaging in conflict and, and if you're engaging this kind of conversation with someone from a different religious background, right? And, and, and you're, you're going to have very, like, you're going to have exclusive truth claims that you can't fix. And that doesn't mean that you still can't be in a right or good relationship with someone who is of a different, you know, faith background or, or no faith at all. And you have, you know, but, but it does, you're, you're going to try to figure out what are the, what are the, the defining issues? What are the things that we might be able to advance into a place of understanding and what are the things that we're going to be, have to put aside and it's some again we you can't live without conflict we're, we're human beings with all the stuff we talked about earlier we're complicated and we're there's always going to be conflict it's not about erasing all conflict but at some point a lot of it is about learning to live together with our differences how do we how do we live in America today where you have this growing divide between sort of red states and blue states and religious people and secular people and, and all of these different ways that we're, that we're dividing, especially geographically, um, it's not necessarily possible that we're gonna, we're gonna fix all these differences. So how do we learn to live together with our differences? Uh, and not just, I mean, civility is really important, but it's gotta be a deeper commitment than just being civil with each other. How do we really have 
some kind of honest respect for each other. What that looks like in the negative is contempt. And that's what we have right now. And that's what is being cultivated. And that's what is so, that's what's robbing others of the dignity that they are made with, you know, in God's image is when we are holding others in contempt. So we have to learn to not be contemptuous of others and at least be respectful of others. And in doing that, find ways to live together with differences when we can't solve them. There are a number of questions that are related to media. Um, so I'm going to kind of consolidate some of these. Um, I'm actually going to frame it this way. I did this experiment this summer where I would uh, write down in two columns. One would be the headlines that was on Fox News and one would be the headlines on CNN. Um, and there was a day when there was something that happened with uh, Donald Trump, it was one of the scandalous, I think it had to do with uh, um, the Stormy Daniels situation. And I looked at CNN and they had 23 stories about terrible things that Donald Trump was doing without mentioning, well, actually only mentioning one other thing that's happening in the world. Then, then I went to Fox News and uh, you had something like 15 people were blamed of doing something wrong, including an elephant and uh, Mario Lopez and, you know, like those sorts of things before it even had one thing that was mentioned about that. And, and the top story of that day was about how an immigrant had like um, attacked a woman or something. And, and so as I look at those, you get almost the sense if you're just reading the one, you would get a sense that there's only one person in the world who does anything wrong, and it's Donald Trump. On the other hand, if you read the Fox News stuff, it'd be like everyone does stuff wrong, including Elephants and Mario Lopez, and maybe Donald Trump does some bad things too. But these are two different worlds, two different senses of reality that people are living in. And so the question would be like, how do we engage news well uh, in a way that helps us get connected to reality and helps us to understand our neighbor, love our neighbor, to, you know, how do we engage news well? What advice would you have for us? That's a, that's a great question. I, I'm almost laughing because I, at the gym where I work out, there are three televisions that are in this area that I work in. And one is on Fox and one is on CNN and one is on sports or when we had sports there was, but now I don't, you know, but it's like, these are your options, America. Because these are three screens are simultaneously happening. I've often thought I wish I had, like started taking a picture each day of what was on the, the, the screens and then recording that over time because we are in three different worlds. We can, we can either we're deeply in politics and it's one version or another or we've just checked out over here. And those are the, the those are like the options in front of us. And, and we that's the that's the one of the curses in the sort of age we live in and this glut of information and, the, and you know, you can, you can only, you can completely select only the media that already affirms your point of view. Mm. So I, I guess what I would say is that two things, um, read outside your comfort zone, read, read sources that you uh, don't agree, that you don't agree with. That's, I mean, just, you know, be honest about, be willing to open up to reading points of view that you that you wouldn't necessarily agree with uh, from sources that you don't, that you wouldn't agree with. The second thing though is to, is to, well, it's actually two more things. One is to be a wise consumer and, and, you know, sort of understand the editorial point of view of the, of the sort of your news source and kind of understand what their what their sort of goal and ideology, ideologies and so forth. And remember that, that, you know, particularly the sort of cable news networks, but a lot of the me social media sources too, they make money by, by, by sort of appealing to our, uh, our division. And they, this is, it's profitable to, to do this. And so don't allow yourself to be manipulated in that way and be smart about that. And then the other thing I'm gonna say is almost the opposite try not to be so cynical about it too, because I, I, you know, I literally have had this happen so many times. I send a friend something to read and they don't read it because they don't agree with the source. Like, they, you know, because if it came from the New York times, it cannot be credible. I mean, you know, like if I sent an article that was in the New York times, 
Well, that's the problem. It was in the New York Times, and it can be in the other direction too. My point is that don't be so cynical to assume that everything is false in an era when a lot of things are false. It really puts a lot of work on us to try to be more discerning, but really not to just just sort of always lap up the stuff that affirms what we already think and the stuff that we're actually often being fed um, for other purposes. So it puts just a lot of burden on people to actually do a little bit more homework than we are that we want to do. We just want to live our lives. We don't want to be so involved in all these larger issues and so forth. And yet we have responsibilities as citizens to engage the world thoughtfully and intelligently because we live in a democracy where we we were, you know, we we actually are are supposed to participate in the system and help make decisions, and so we have to be informed about these things. And so you have to do your homework. So it's mm. it's it's really challenging right now. I could not I could not agree more. Yeah, one thing I would add to that is I a practice that I picked up I picked up from somebody here in the church is to never read the news without praying through the news uh, and praying through the headlines. Um, another and another one with that is like try to do it in more intentional stints where you can actually go deep and process things and actually let your heart feel the emotion because we shouldn't be able to read about explosions in Beirut and um, the loss of of life um, you know uh, in hospitals and these sorts of things and just let it wash over us without affecting us um, and, and I think that, that helps as well. Um, I, have, I have a friend who, who actually chose to, own, to turn off all news sources, both television, social media, radio, the whole bit, and subscribe to a weekly news magazine. And so once a week, he got a, a, a magazine that had all the kind of week's news in it and caught up in that way and, and lived the rest of his life. Now, there's a little bit of privilege in that because, you know, if, you ha if you're so disconnected from, if politics doesn't affect you any more than that, that you can just kind of step your toe in once a week and read something, then, you know, then, then there's something that's a little bit privileged about that. But, but the point is that it, if, you, if you really are living day to day on the cycles of this, you know, with especially with cable news and social media, you can just be in a constant state of agitation and you're not creating space in your soul to really mourn the giant tragedy in Beirut, right? You just go mm. on to the next thing. Uh, so that's a, that's a really good point. Mm. This is a unique question that came through here. How do we foster um, this posture of peacemaking, these six things that you named amongst children? And do you have any stories from the Israeli-Palestine uh, situation where children were playing a role in peacemaking? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of the groups, like I mentioned the parent circle, the, you know, the families who work on the reconciliation stuff, they also, um, they have camps for kids. Uh, and there's a, there's a number of programs that have happened in, that have been uh, created in Israel and Palestine in the last 30 years or so that seek to bring kids together. Like, it's almost like in some cases they sort of abandon the current generation as being too far gone. And so we're just going to work with the kids and, be, and get them before they, you know, before they uh, become too, you know, disconnected from each other. Um, but, but the challenge in that work is that they, it works really well until the kids turn 18 and then the Jewish kids go off to the Israeli army and they end up, you know, at the checkpoint, uh, with Palestinian kids and, and they, and their social, through social media and so forth, they start posting very different kinds of things and experiences and they, they start to fall apart in the Israeli Palestinian context. But I do think working with kids is, is really an important part of this. And we, the church has not, the evangelical side of the church at least has not done a very good job of creating resources that are really targeted toward teaching children uh, or even adults about peacemaking in the in the Palestinian Arab world, the Christian world, uh, the evangelical Palestinian church, there's a, a theologian at the Nazareth Evangelical School who's created a, a, a Bible and a book, I mean, a, a book of Bible stories and other stories that is that is helping children understand the concepts of peace and peacemaking and enemy love and those sorts of things. It's in Arabic. It's not been translated into English yet, but I think that's a really interesting idea to start creating more uh, you know, more materials, resources for Sunday school programs, that sort of thing. It really is, if we, if we are going to embrace this as central to our Christian discipleship, we're going to have to put the, 
the same attention to it that, that we that we put to other discipleship issues and we're going to have to create more resources and materials and experiences not, i mean you know uh, curricula that sort of thing but actual experiences in, our, in learning how to do this and practicing it because it, it, these, these are things we have to practice mm. well what i want to do now is um i want us to not just engage this as some content uh but to actually do something so uh todd can you can you walk through your six points again and i'm going to put us in breakout rooms i know some of you are going to bail on the breakout rooms because you're introverts but uh that's all right um can you name those six and the question is going to be which one of these six do i need to focus in on the first was listen to understand the second one is dehumanization is a dangerous game the third was we have to hold competing truths in tension. Uh, the fourth one was self-interrogation is more helpful than blame. The fifth is transformation is possible. And the sixth is the end goal is reconciliation. Perfect. 